praise the Lord, Grace and Mercy Fellowship Center, and all of those that have joined us from around the world, we definitely salute you this morning, this uh, 26th of April, in the year of our Lord, 2020. It's uh, truly an honor to be with you today, to share with you what God has laid on my heart. Uh, we definitely want to uh, be a blessing to you. And we pray that the Spirit of God would minister to you, uh, open your hearts and minds to receive what he has given me to give to you, that it would be a blessing and an increase in your life. Last week, um, we were talking about the war in the desert, um, and we're going to continue down that same vein today with part two of this uh, sermon series. And uh, I have to say, this, this is really dear to my heart. Uh, this word that God has given me because in it is keys to great success for those that are dealing with temptation, uh, those that are dealing with addictions, those that are uh, dealing with some frustrations in life. Uh, here we are still dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and many of us are still in the stay at home uh, order and declaration by the varying governors across the United States. And uh, for those of you that are tuning in from across the globe, um, I'm not really sure what the status is in your uh, countries, but uh, suffice it to say, this is a very trying time, not just for any one person or any one country, but for the entirety of the world, as we're all in some way touched by this uh, tremendous disease. Uh, but this word that God has given me and uh, allowed me to share with you um, will be a tremendous uh, blessing to you and uh, we're going to give a, just a couple moments for some people to to tune in um, I have some people on online on Facebook watching and um, they'll send me some updates that uh, will let me know when I can get started so to speak I, I, I don't want anyone to miss what God has given me to give to you um, so I thank those that are sending me messages and uh, letting me know kind of uh, where we're at. Um, I know that some people use Facebook Live um, in and of itself. Uh, we do not use that program. We stream through uh, Christian World Media, and we thank God for them and their service. And it, it gives us the ability to stream on uh, more than just one platform which has allowed us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across, across the world uh, in places that uh, don't have access to Facebook but have access to other um, streams of uh, video and uh, technology. So we thank God for them and we ask the blessings of the Lord upon that company so that we'll be able to continue to uh, spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, especially in a time like this. Uh, when it seems like we're just looking for some hope. We're looking for some direction, some leadership, and for some hope. And it seems like all of those are in short supply. Uh, but we're so thankful that we serve a God that cannot fail, a God that has all knowledge, all power, all wisdom, all understanding, who is touched in every way as we are. Uh, he's our high priest, and we're so thankful that we serve him, that our hope is in him and understanding that we know that we shall not fail but we will come through this we are in this together as a people we are in this together as uh, humanity 
but the greatest thing for the believer is, is that as much as we're in this together with one another, we're in this together with God. And that is the greatest thing that uh, we could ever hope for. So again, we're just excited about the word of God. Uh, I was very excited last week and almost bounced out the chair, but my wife reminded me that uh, these chairs might need a little bit of work. Uh, so not to wiggle or dance too much uh, because uh, I may end up uh, out of the view of the camera. Uh, but we thank the Lord for uh, holding me up this morning and giving the chair some strength to carry this weight. Uh, but we thank God for uh, this opportunity again to minister to you and to share with you what God has laid on my heart. So again, we salute you. We welcome you to this version of Grace and Mercy Fellowship Center. Uh, May 1st, or the first Sunday in May, uh, will be part of the phased in uh, return uh, to some level of normalcy. Um, uh, the governor is, is releasing some businesses and institutions and things of that nature uh, back into um, an adjusted type of uh, normalcy, returning people to work. And we have a plan as well that I will share with the, with the body of GMFC um, to phase in our approach to the return of a fellowship in the house of God. Uh, we are still working through some of the details and we'll be putting that out to you on our uh, communication platform um, and uh, be seeking your input and uh, participation and assistance uh, with uh, getting this going. But we're looking to uh, do uh, something a little bit different um, as we return to some level of normalcy in our fellowship and in our worship with God um, as a body of believers, while at the same time practicing wisdom, um, taking the necessary precautions so that if there is a resurgence of this virus, that it would not affect any of us because we're doing um, what you've asked for. So praise the Lord. Let's get going. We've got a few online. So we're excited for each and every one of you. Again, God bless you. I salute you. Uh, Lady Stephanie salutes you. And uh, we're excited uh, that we are all here together in this uh, method of um, being able to share the word of God with you. So we left off talking about one of the greatest demonstrations of the power of the will over the power of temptation. And I'm, I'm led to start today with uh, where this location or, or where the battle itself took place, the location of this struggle uh, between uh, our Lord and the devil. The location of a struggle at times is almost as important as the struggle itself or the people involved in the combat. And this cage match of sorts uh, begins in a place that is, that is identified in Scripture as the wilderness. Uh, but what some don't realize is it doesn't stay in the wilderness. It moves from the wilderness to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And then finally, the temptation jumps to an exceeding high mountain. So we understand that the battle can take place in various places, and each of those places uh, demonstrates different characteristics and will elicit different responses as, as well as having different needs um, to endure in those different places. 
Now, the location of the wilderness itself is uncertain, but tradition, the theologians and all the smart people, those much smarter than I, have a belief or they kind of lean towards the wilderness being the north, uh, being an area that, um, north of the Dead Sea. But wherever this wilderness is, the place of temptation was certainly not a nice, refreshing, or pleasant, picturesque place. This was rather a, um, a dark place. It was exactly opposite of what we would consider good. And I find four things that I want to point out to you, uh, features, if you will, of this wilderness that we need to take a look at, explore, uh, come to an understanding today. This wilderness was a desolate place. This wilderness is a dangerous place. This wilderness is a deserted place. And it is also a dedicated place. So I want to talk to you about these four things. I don't plan to be before you long today, but I just want to focus on some of these things, and then we'll have one thing uh, that I'll share with you before we close. But this wilderness is a desolate place. It's a dangerous place. It's a deserted place, and it is a dedicated place. So let's talk about this des desolate place. Uh, this wilderness, or the wilderness in this scripture, uh, is utterly desolate of any good thing. It is an unproductive and sterile environment. The wilderness around Jericho and the Dead Sea was like that. It was filled with sand, rocks, and limestone caves. To live in the wilderness is extremely difficult. Scripture says that Christ fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Now, anyone who's tried to fast for one day or three days or seven days, which seems to be kind of the norm in the time in which we live, finds that those times are very difficult for us. But fasting uh, for 40 days is always going to be hard to do. But in one sense, it would not be as hard to fast in 40 day, fast for 40 days in the wilderness because your ability to obtain food and drink in the wilderness in and of itself is difficult. So if you're in a place like this, you know, it, it may be easier to fast in the sense that you don't have access. You, there's no refrigerator in the wilderness. There's no uh, you know, Walmart, there's no place to just run in and get you something to eat when you, if you just can't take it anymore. You just, you're in the wilderness. You gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. So, you know, thinking about it, while it may not be too hard to fast, it's definitely hard to stay alive in the wilderness. Um, the wilderness would afford Christ no help. Uh, he's in this by himself as he's fighting the devil. The wilderness represents being stripped of all of your natural support systems and all of your natural support mechanisms. You're, you are in this. Uh, there's no help. You're out there by yourself. Uh, the desolate situation in which Christ lived when he encountered Satan for this 40-day period was a great contrast to the circumstances of the Garden of Eden when Satan assaulted Adam and Eve, and it's important that we understand this contrast, the difference between the location of the garden and all that the Garden of Eden provided for Adam and Eve for their great success and everything that was stripped from Christ 
while in the wilderness, yet he was triumphant, where Adam and Eve, not so much. Christ defeats Satan in a terrible circumstance, where Adam and Eve, in the finest of circumstances, was defeated by the devil. This fact of Christ's victory in the wilderness and the defeat of Adam and Eve in the beautifulness of the Garden of Eden destroys the idea that one who is in a good environment is destined for success. We've got to get out of our minds this idea that we can only succeed if we have an environment that promotes success or that uh, fills us with all the resources of success that you can't make it if you're in the hood, that you can't make it if you're in you know, the so-called wilderness of today because there's nothing around you that promotes or grants you this element of success just in the characteristic of where you are. Uh, and many of us, we adopt this idea that because of where we are, we can or cannot make it or become successful or uh, live a successful and triumphant life because there are no resources for us. The idea that um, even if you, if you look at the studies of the COVID-19 and, and the effects upon uh, our culture, it seems to have a more dramatic and drastic effect. And some would surmise that this is because uh, you know, we lack the access to uh, specific resources. And I'm going to say something that may frustrate some people, but I don't necessarily buy into that because I believe that we as uh, human beings can make decisions for ourselves to generate lives that are uh, more healthy than the decisions we make. I like ham hocks and fat backs and bacon and all that stuff like everybody else. But, um, you know, being the fact that uh, it has a, a negative effect on us, we have to decide what is right or best for us. And we choose to satisfy our flesh, to fill ourselves with things that can be harmful without moderation uh, into the body, which then, then generates for us underlying health conditions that we could have and can still defeat. We have the ability to not be a people struggling with health conditions. Um, it's inherent to our culture because of the things that we do to our own selves. Uh, it's not, this is not because we're black, but it's because of the culture we've generated for ourselves that we have allowed ourselves to become susceptible to underlying health conditions that unfortunately in this COVID-19 age uh, is a very debilitating problem to have. Um, but even though our culture may have generated a lifestyle that is not beneficial to the health of our physical being, it does not mean that we cannot be successful in this culture because maybe we don't have the accesses to uh, health care and all these different things because we do have the ability to make better health decisions over how we care for ourselves, which according to the word of God is vitally important. But I, I slip off on a sidetrack, a sidebar, and I apologize for that. Let me get back to the study today. I just happen to find that, you know, the opposite is true about, uh, you know, 
being successful only because you're in a successful environment. Paradise, the most successful environment that you can be in, was lost in the garden. But it was regained in the wilderness. How amazing is that? In the most successful environment that we could have as human beings, we failed. Yet, in the most unhospitable environment, the most dangerous environment, we gain victory in an environment that's not posed to grant you some level of success. In spite of every circumstance being favorable in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve, they fail. And in spite of every circumstance motivating uh, evil uh, to win in the wilderness, Christ stood. You know, it, it, it's really important. All the government programs to put people in better circumstances is not the solution to crime or unemployment. An unholy spirit is going to turn the best of places into a jungle. But a godly spirit will turn a jungle into a place of beauty. The question I have for the people of God and for all of those that are tuning in that are struggling with their faith is what spirit is ruling the location you find yourself? Is the spirit of God ruling to turn your jungle into a place of beauty? Or is an ungodly spirit ruling turning your beauty into a jungle? We understand that this is that the wilderness is a dangerous place. Scripture is really replete with uh, descriptions of just how dangerous this place is. The Gospel of Mark tells us that in this wilderness, Christ was with the wild beasts. Let's look at Mark 1 and 13. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the King James Version uh, in Mark 1 and 13, and it says, And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now, if, if we look at the text, we find that the Greek word which is translated into wild beast in the text means dangerous animal or animals in plural, not one but many. The mention of wild beasts in this wilderness uh, emphasizes the hostility of this wilderness experience for Christ. It, it wasn't an easy time. It wasn't the fact that he just didn't have anything, but there were opposing and dangerous forces in this wilderness with him with the desire to destroy him. So this desolation of the wilderness tells us that nothing was helpful to Christ. And the beasts of the wilderness tells us that there was active hostility to Christ in this wilderness experience. It wasn't a delightful 40 days and 40 nights that he spent in the wilderness, but as you will see, as we continue to take a look at this and study this fight of the ages, it might not have been delightful, but it still was victorious. Oh, thank you, Jesus. It was still in a, a victorious experience. It was still a time of triumph and victory. That tells me that even in your wilderness experience that you may be going through right now, victory is waiting for you. Triumph is your portion. You ought to grab a hold of that and accept that it doesn't matter where I'm at or what the condition of my life is. I am a child of victory. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor.
As a matter of fact, the Bible tells me I'm more than a conqueror. I don't just conquer. I do better than what conquerors do. I'm more than they are through the power of Christ Jesus that's working on the inside of me to make my environment whatever it needs to be so that I can be successful. We have to learn that uh, the surroundings um, in this encounter between the devil and Jesus, they, they teach us some very important things. We live in an environment that wants to kill us because of who we are, yet the majority of us depend on the environment in which we live rather than depending on God to give us victory over the environment and uh, you know what we're doing and how we're engaging life while we're in our present environment. This wild beast uh, situation in the wilderness which Christ uh, is experiencing was uh, not unlike the character situation he encountered throughout the entirety of his ministry. He came to a world uh, that was very hostile to him. Men, humanity acted like wild beasts and they tried to destroy Christ consistently. Let's look at the word of God. The book of Luke, the fourth chapter, the 28th through the 30th verse. Again, I'll be reading uh, from the King James Version, which is uh, where I read mostly from. Um, and I want to share this with you. Luke 4, 28 and 30, and it says, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow, uh, or the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Oh, that's an amazing experience. They took Jesus to the edge of a mountain to cast him out because of the things that he was preaching and the things that he was saying in the synagogue. It, it was uh, directly against what they chose to believe. And they wanted to kill him. They, they grabbed him. They violently, the word thrust is a violent action. They take him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. They're going to throw him off a cliff. They've got Jesus in their hands. And somehow he vanishes right in the midst of them. He makes his way through the middle of them. He was the first invisible man. How amazing is that? And he didn't have a suit. For those of you that have seen the latest Invisible Man movie, he, had, he didn't wear a suit that just deflected light to cause him to be unseeable. In the midst of them, he walked through them and they couldn't even tell it was him. How amazing is that? That's the kind of God you serve. Some of you can enjoy the ability to be the invisible man in your climax situation when your enemies are poised to throw you off a mountain if you would just have confidence and faith in God. Paul says that he fought with beasts. And the word wild is really implied here when he was in Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 15 and 32. And it says, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, or Ephesus, I'm sorry, what advantage it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we will die. Paul was at Ephesus uh, exposed to violent uh, people, 
And this expression of beast is often used by the ancients of the day figuratively for uh, enraged men. Wild beast also describes the environment or the world that's around us, which would love to destroy us, the body of Christ. Wild beasts of humanity violently and viciously persecute the people of God in the world in which we are living. Some of you can attest to that right now. You're being persecuted in your own community. You're being persecuted in your own city. You're being persecuted in your own state. You're being persecuted in your own nation. Simply because you're a child of God. Because you believe differently than the world. The situation that Christians are living in all over the world is becoming more and more hostile to their faith. And this ungodly world in which we live is becoming more and more beastly in character. But don't let these wild beasts break your faith. But be as Christ by remaining true and faithful to the will of God in spite of the wild beasts that stand against you. Something else very curious about this location of this battle is uh, that the wilderness area is often called a desert place, or it's often called a desert. Uh, and it's called that because generally it's deserted. It's a place where people aren't. A deserted place uh, emphasizes that Christ is all alone in regard to humans in his dwelling in the wilderness. Thus, the wilderness was a place of solitude for Christ. Solitude is the place where victories are won or lost. And it's important that we realize and recognize this very important fact. We believe the only way to win battles is by amassing a great number of troops to stand with us. But if we take a hard look at the life of Christ, we find that he was often going off alone to win the battles of life. The thrust is who do you put your trust in? Is your trust in chariots or is your trust in God? Often try, times we try to get our posse together because with our posse we're strong and seemingly when we're alone we're weak. But throughout scripture, God is always whittling down the number to show us that our confidence should not be in the number that stand with us but in the he that stands with us. We are in public, what we have been in private, and it's important that you see the point that I'm getting ready to make. Because many of us in private are one thing, but in public, we're something different. We should always remember that it is in private that we are prepared for our defeats or our victories while we're standing in public. Therefore, those of us who say that private life, that the private life of politicians uh, don't really matter much uh, and only the public life matters are really ludicrous in their thinking because it's the private life or the private experiences that define who we are and how we relate to life itself. What are you preparing yourself in private for? Let me ask you this, does your public persona match your private preparation? Or is it the lack of private preparation that's screaming in your public persona? Hmm, just a thought. Sometimes we fail in public 
because we have no preparation in private. We all need solitude in which we can be alone with God. But Satan will prostitute every advantage that we would have for spiritual growth into situations where he can do great spiritual damage. That's his job. He's the greatest pimp of all kind. So while solitude is very helpful and needful for our spiritual growth as we're spending time with God, it can also be a place of great temptation. Our fiercest struggles are often experienced in solitude or when we're alone, just like it is here with Christ. Being alone in the wilderness also pictures the fact that those who do the will of God will often be alone. There's not a whole lot of people running to stand at your side when you start proclaiming the name of Jesus. It seems that somehow proclaiming the name of Jesus puts you into a uh, boat all by yourself. Nobody seems to want to stand in that boat with you anymore. It seems like associating yourself with Christ is the very thing you don't want to do while it is the very thing that will save your life. The crowd is going to desert you. The crowd of people that you surround yourself with will desert you. Many of you have already experienced that. Where are your friends when you're in need? Where are those who say they're ride or die when it's time to die? It's all cool to ride, but when it gets to that dying part, it seems like you're dying by yourself. After the prophet Jeremiah said that he had eaten the word of God, he also said, I sat alone. Jeremiah 15 and 17. I sat not in the assembly of mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Those who are excited about God and about his word will sit alone. Christ followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, but it's a lonely trip. It's a lonely trip. As a matter of fact, it's a narrow path, not a wide or popular road but it's still the right path. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 reminds us, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Which road are you on? Which gate are you traveling through? It's a question you really must ask yourself because it's important. Because depending on what road you're on will determine your destination. Because not all roads lead to the same place. I also want to leave this with you. This wilderness place is a dedicated place. When I started this study, I identified an important principle that Christ obediently follows the leading of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And this demonstrates the great dedication of Christ to doing the will of God rather than the will of himself or the will of his flesh, particularly because the wilderness is a desolate, dangerous, and deserted place which would not appeal 
to the flesh. Being in a luxurious place does not readily reflect dedication to the will of God. If you're going to do the will of God, you will doubtlessly have to take on some wilderness assignments. Not every assignment that God gives you is going to be in Beverly Hills. Some assignments that you get from God are going to be in some very dangerous, dark, and dismal places. Places that are not pleasant places. The salary is not going to be real good. You're not going to be uh, the, the popular one. Peril or wild beasts or humanity is going to be against you on every hand. I look at preachers all the time and I frequently talk to pastors across this nation and I find that preachers are frequently looking for nice churches to pastor. But they're not so much looking for the churches that are in the wilderness. God's will, however, will send many preachers to wilderness churches because it takes great dedication to be obedient in the wilderness assignment. The battles that are encountered in the wilderness places are rough and tough. God sees it all, though, and the reward will be according to the battle, not according to the lack of prestige or the status in the wilderness assignment that you face. And it's important that we uh, understand this. As we continue to examine the synoptic gospel uh, account of this epic battle between Christ and Satan, we find some uh, very significant and instructive details which tell us about the period of time in which this temptation event takes place. And I find in the details of the scripture three elements which directly correlate to time. There's the temptation uh, was a parenthetical time, there was a predictable time, and there is a prolonged time. And I want to close out today by talking to you about these facets of time as they relate to this uh, battle of the wills or this great cage match, uh, you know, experience of Christ and the devil. Let's talk about the parenthetical time. The time of the temptation event was in some ways an interruption, a divine parenthesis, if you will, in the ministry of Christ. Luke says that right after Christ's baptism, he returned from Jordan, Luke 4 and 1, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But that is followed by the statement which says, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the statement which follows return from Jordan indicates an interruption in the text. For Christ had not been in the wilderness, and to go there was not a return. The only returning that Christ could do would be from Galilee because he had just come from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. Matthew 3 and 13 says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. It's only after the temptation event that the scripture indicates that Jesus returned uh, to Galilee. Let's take a look at Galilee, or, or uh, I'm sorry, at Luke 4 and 14 where it says and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit into Galilee and there went out a fame of him through all that region 
roundabout. So the return then started at Jordan, was diverted to a trip into the wilderness to face the devil. The temptation was an interruption in the schedule. It was a divine parenthesis uh, in the life of Christ. I bet if you examine your life, and for some of you right now, you will find that these divine parentheses uh, are not really unique to Christ, but they often show up and are happening right now in the life that you're living as well. Now follow what I'm saying closely. There are no interruptions in God's plan for your life, but they do seem like interruptions to our mind, and often we do not take well to these disturbances in our life. We carefully make our own plans, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with making you know, plans for yourself. As a matter of fact, you should make plans for yourself. You shouldn't be willy-nilly walking through life, but you should be strategizing and planning out your next steps. The problem is, or the not really the problem, but the issue is, is that God comes along and puts some extra details in our plans, such as some trial, which is what Christ faced in this temptation experience. And for Christ, it was a painful trial. And if you were to testify of yourself, these interruptions in your plans are often painful for you as well. Hebrews 2 and 18 declares, for in that he himself have suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. If we are not dedicated to God's will, we're going to rebel when the interruptions show up. How do we then deal with these adjustments in life to our planning phases? We must look into the example of Christ. Jesus demonstrates a foolproof strategy on how to react to these divine interruptions. Jesus submitted to the divine interruption without protest. Thus, the trial that interrupted his life is accepted and encountered with a triumphant end. When you rebel against rather than accept what God is trying to do, you turn yourself into a way of destruction. But when you accept that God is leading, you are going to end up on top. This is also a predictable time. Temptation can come at any time. And for some of us, it always shows up when we least expect it. But there are times which are predictable for the coming of temptation. I'm getting ready to let you in on something that will give you the upper hand. This is what they call insider knowledge or insider information. Now in the world of stocks, insider information is illegal. I'm here to tell you that giving you this insider information is illegal in the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness doesn't want you to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. There are two particular times when you can expect temptation. And this fact is seen in the temptation experience of Christ in the wilderness. You have to listen intently to what I'm getting ready to reveal to you because the devil doesn't want you to know this. In finding this out, you're going to be able to properly prepare for whatever comes rather than being caught unaware. Here it is. 
divine in uh, divine revelation to lead you to victory over your temptation. The two times, the insider information after blessings and before service. I just let you in on a key that will knock down 80% of the temptations that are going to come into your life. Now you know when to expect them. And since you know when to expect them, if you're wise, you can properly prepare for them. After blessings and before service. Let's talk about this real brief. After your blessing. Prior to entering the wilderness, Jesus had just come from the greatest experience of his life. Nothing in his life was like what he just experienced. It was his baptism into the Jordan by John. Two words in scripture emphasize that the time of the temptation was right after the baptism. Those two words are then in Matthew 4 and 1 and immediately in Mark 1 and 12. These words connect what came after the baptism to the baptism of Christ itself. The baptism of Christ is a phenomenal experience for Jesus. The blessing of the baptism can be summed up in a threefold way. The dipping, the dove, and the declaration. What is embodied by these three special blessings for Christ is very frequently followed by the attack of the tempter. Let me break this down a little bit further. First, the dipping. The baptism or the dipping in the water, the submersion of the water, uh, of the body in the water. Uh, in this case, Christ in the Jordan was an act of obedience. And because it's an act of obedience, it brings the blessing of obedience. Saints of God, there is a blessing in obedience. Obedience will always bring blessings from God. But predictably, it will also bring buffeting from the devil. When you obey God, you will be opposed by the devil. He who most closely follows God will be most closely followed by the devil. It seems like on TikTok and um, uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook, Everyone's looking for followers. Well, saints, I'm here to tell you that the, a third of the angels who fell from heaven, when Lucifer fell and was cast out by God, that unholy alliance of the innumerable number of angels, you're looking for followers, they're following you when you follow Christ. It may not be the followers you want, but it will be the followers you get. When we are disobedient, the work of the devil is not hindered. But if we ever envelop the idea of obedience, you're going to reap the rewards of obedience. Therefore, Satan goes after the obedient ones, for they are his greatest hindrance. When you are obedient, you are a great hindrance to God. Imagine 
The enemy's trying to destroy your relationship with your husband or your wife. But if you're obedient, not to your husband or wife, but to what scripture declares for you in the position, in the relationship that you hold, you reap the blessings of God upon your relationship. But when you're disobedient, you do not hinder the plan of the enemy to destroy your relationship. Second, there's the dove, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Christ, the anointing, the enabling of Christ. This great blessing uh, of the endowment of power for service is another real problem for the devil. And predictably, Satan is going to attack, to attack the anointed. Well, we declare that we are the anointed of God. The anointed means we're filled with the power of God to destroy the work of the enemy. What does the anointing do? It destroys the foothold. It destroys the stronghold of the enemy. The anointing destroys the yoke of bondage. So being anointed is going to compel the enemy to come after you. Let me put it to you another way. Matter of fact, all of my postbook posters, all of my Instagram posters, all of my TikTok posters, you can post this. After the dove shall come the devil. After the anointing comes the attack. A thief doesn't steal from those who have nothing because there's nothing to take. But when you have something of value, you find there are those who want to take what is yours. We know that the enemy comes but to steal, kill, and to destroy. For some of you, he's not coming because there's nothing to steal. But for some of you, you are so full of the presence of God, he wants to take it because in your obedience, you bring blessing upon yourself. In your anointing, you bring power upon yourself. Those who are spiritually rich are going to be special targets of this great thief. Lastly, there is the declaration. The final of the three great blessings for Christ, which precede the temptation experience, was Christ hearing the voice from heaven in which God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You'll find that in Matthew 3 and 17, where it declares and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This was a great praise from God, the Father, for God, the Son. It was a great blessing indeed, for no blessing is greater than praise from God, an accolade from God. And predictably, when you are praised by God, you're going to be pursued by the devil, whom God approves the devil attacks. There is great enmity from the devil for all of us whom God greatly esteems. When God honors you, you can count on the devil hating you. 
When God honors you, you can count on the devil, the world, the kingdom of darkness, the citizens of that kingdom, the systems of this world to all be against you. Let's talk about, this is after the blessing. Let's talk about before service. This is the other aspect of the revelation I've given you so that you can prepare for the temptation to garner success and triumph in your life. The great temptation experience of Christ in the wilderness not only came after the blessing, but it also came before he was released into service. The temptation occurs just before Christ begins his great public ministry. And Satan predictably attempts to stop the great ministry of Jesus at its inception or at its beginning. He started by trying to prevent the birth of Christ. Before any holy enterprise is about to begin, Satan is going to do his best to cripple it. If Satan can ruin it at the beginning, he has gained great success over the very thing that is being born to bring defeat to his kingdom. When I look at the body of GMFC, I see the many beginnings that the devil is trying to snuff out before you ever really get going. The devil's trying to abort you. The devil's trying to destroy you while you're in your infancy. Satan's motive in attacking early is an evil motive, but the strategy in attacking early is not necessarily evil in and of itself. The best way to stop anything is to stop it before it gets going, before it gets any momentum. If you want to stop something, it is a good strategy to try to stop it in its embryo stage rather than waiting until it is fully grown. You have to practice this principle when you're fighting against the enemy and the temptations of the enemy and the temptations of your flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Waiting to fight sin when sin is full grown into a tree makes it much more difficult to fight than when sin is just a small sprout in the ground. Satan certainly practices attacking from the beginning of any holy enterprise. And you will often find many new endeavors planned and promoted for the progress of God's work are often going to find its opposition from Satan through rebellious church folk who do the work of the devil in the church. I call these people plants. They're in the church, but they're not of the church. When we know the enemy is coming, we have no excuse for not getting adequately ready to meet him. And you meet him in the private place with God. Lastly, there's a prolonged time. This fast, being 40 days tempted of the devil. Our text indicates that Christ was assaulted by the devil for 40 days. Thus, the temptation time was a prolonged time. The word translated tempted in Mark 1 and 13 also emphasizes the continuousness of the temptation. 
In the Greek, that word is a present tense participle, participle, uh, uh, speaking of a continuous action. Satan tempted our Lord constantly during the 40 days. The three temptations at the end of the 40-day period of the temptation merely indicate the additional intensity or the climax of the temptation. It was not the only temptation. For the Bible declares that Jesus was tempted in all ways like us. Some would have you to believe that Jesus was only tempted three times. So in studying the text, I find evidence that the three great temptations were not the only temptations. As a matter of fact, a famous theologian once said, unless careful attention is paid to the united text of the evangelist, we are likely to fall into one of two errors by supposing either that the three temptations recorded cover a period of 40 days or that Jesus was tempted only on the 40th day. But of these con uh, conceptions uh, are contrary to the facts, which are that the temptation of the record were all on the 40th day, but that Jesus was also tempted during all of the preceding 39 days. You see, there is at least as much comfort in the unwritten part of this story as in what is recorded. For we see our Lord representing us and showing us how to conquer not only on the great and special days, but throughout the countless average days of our Christian experience. The 39 days of temptation are intended by Satan to wear the one being tempted down for the great assault on the 40th day. Think of the military. Before we send in the ground troops for the great onslaught, we typically, as they say, soften the target with the Air Force or with uh, aircraft from the Navy and, and the different forces that use aircraft. We soften the target by bombing them before the main onslaught of our ground troops come in. This is a strategy because when you soften the target, the ground troops have greater success in accomplishing their mission was well, no different with the devil. The average days of our temptation are an attempt by him to soften us for the great attack that he has at the climax of his engagement with you. These 39 days can be used instead to strengthen you for that major attack that's coming. Every time we defeat temptation, we grow stronger in defeating temptation. If you want victory when the big temptation comes, you have to have victory in the small temptation. If you can't win the small battles during the average days, you will not conquer the big battles on those special days. The matter of fact, the Bible tells us, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in least is unjust also in much. This is the principle, Luke 16 and 10. If you want to be victorious and you want to enjoy great success in these times of temptation, 
listen to the things that I've shared with you today. You can be victorious in temptation if you prepare yourself properly. If you understand that because you know when the temptation is coming, by looking at everything that's going on, you won't be caught unaware. And because in your time of preparation, you've allowed yourself to become prepared for the fight. Any boxing fan will tell you, you can see the, prep the preparation of the boxer as they're entering the ring before the fight even starts. Oftentimes the commentator will uh, make a um, statement about how sweaty or dry the uh, boxer is. The dry boxer is the one that they say is not really prepared. They've come in cold. And typically, the dry boxer gets knocked out. But the moist boxer, the one that was in the waiting room preparing themselves for the impending fight, going through the steps, warming their body up, is typically the one that wins the fight. It's important for you people of God to understand that as God blesses you, as you're obedient to God, as God sings your praises, you can expect the enemy to come. When you have just received a blessing or when you're getting ready to go into service, you can expect an attack of the enemy to come. And because I know he is coming, I can prepare for it. And in my preparation, being made ready, I can enjoy victory over that very temptation. And the more victory I enjoy day by day over the temptations of life, when the great onslaught of the enemy comes, I can stand more than a conqueror over everything that the enemy might try to do to me. People of God, victory is on your side. Success is on your side. Stop looking at your surroundings and look at God who is inside of you working through you to express who he is in you to the world. God bless you, people of God. I hope that this word from God inspires you. It ignites a fire within you. You are greater than the sum total of your defeats. Your past is not a defining principle of your future. What steps you take next will define the next thing you're going to enjoy. If you take steps of preparation, you're going to enjoy great success.
I'm praying for you. The Spirit of the Lord keep you, be with you, and grant to you great peace. God bless you. Have a great and wonderful Sunday. And know that if nothing else, I am praying for you.